right, all right, all right. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Holy Echo. What had happened? A true crime podcast. I am your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. I hope you guys are all well um, on this nocturnal recording of tonight's episode. We've got the smooth ambiance of crickets. I'm with it. I can dig it. Anywho, hope you all are all doing well. Super big welcome to our new listeners and shout out to all of you for continuing to tune in. I know you can listen to anyone, so I am always super grateful you've chosen to lend me your ears. You guys are amazing. We've got over a thousand streams in the last seven months. You guys are the best. Keep telling your people. Tell your friends, tell your coworkers, tell your associates, tell the people on the bus that you're socially distanced from, that you see listening to podcasts. Hey, what had happened? A true crime podcast is out there. Also, please don't forget to join the What Had Happened Facebook group if you haven't already done so, where I share true crime stories and some funky-ass true crime memes. Also, the What Had Happened Instagram and Twitter that I promise New Year's resolution will be used more. Our last episode, I told you about a handful of murders committed by New Jersey serial killer Robert Zerniski. Zerniski, sorry. The victims were classified under a larger case name, the New Jersey Girl Murders, that consisted of over 66 murders between 1960 and 1980. I also told you in that episode that Richard Cottingham was the second serial killer New Jersey police were able to apprehend in connection to some of the New Jersey girl murders. Today, I will be jumping right into it because it's going to be a long one, and I will be telling you what had happened when the torso killer struck. Richard Francis Cottingham was born on November 25th, 1946 in Bronx, New York. It took everything in me to not say the Bronx, New York. Mm. It's kind of like the Ohio State. You know who you are. His father worked in insurance and his mother a homemaker. Mrs. Cottingham and her firstborn had a super close relationship. (coughs) Flag number one. The oldest of three, Richard was slight socially awkward (coughs) flag number two reportedly Richard had poor eyesight and therefore was unable to get involved with sports that would allow him to develop some sort of socialization amongst his peers hmm waffly flag in 1958 the Cottingham family relocated to Rivervale New Jersey for seventh grade Richard this provided to be this proved to be quite a challenge making all new friends and becoming part of the community fabric in high school richard began fitting in more loosely like saying that there's like a loose air quote or something like with his classmates and he joined the track and field team as it quote gave him alone time <coughs> flag definitely number four I mean, okay, weird flex as a person who actually ran track doesn't really make much sense because you're training with team members and coaches, so there isn't really much silence 
Unless he meant when literally running, it's pretty quiet. I don't know. I'm not going to give that thought process any more time in my head. Oh, gosh. But on a darker note, Richard developed an unhealthy obsession with pornography. More specifically, like, analogy time. Betty, Betty Page bdsm type photographs so i've seen hers in a documentary about her life but also because i'm here for you for the culture um i gave it a quick goog for images of the fetish from the early 60s and yeah it's definitely super graphic and i'll leave it right there give that a goog at your own discretion while in school although he'd engage in locker room banter you know um he never dated in school anywho richard graduated from uh, they're saying pascac valley high school in 1964 after graduation richard went like directly into like working with his father at metropolitan life insurance agency as a computer technician operator something along those lines because he had always had a fascination with technology and you know like i mean i'll give the sick person this much he was progressive in his thinking and understanding that it was really something to have your finger on the pulse of um so yeah at the insurance agency he was a computer technician so another fucking analogy already out the gate i've probably hit you guys with five holy fucking shit follow me when i think of the granddaddy of computers because that's what he was working on and this was like because this was 1964 Ooh, and computer science at the time in the mid 60s i envisioned two things because of the okay because the 60s are a couple of decades out of my wheelhouse I see the Xerox episodes of Mad Men and season two, episode 10 of I Dream of Jeannie, the girl who never had a birthday party, which involves a supercomputer the size of a Manhattan five-floor walk-up studio apartment. (sighs) At the age of 20, Richard took employment at Blue Cross Blue Shield Association as a computer operator, which sounds pretty fucking soul-crushingly demanding a la Ray and Dennis from Jurassic Park to me to me because again I just told you like I envision like supercomputers I I mean like when okay so if you can't think of like a supercomputer taking up a whole ass room and like what that must entail making sure that it goes off without a hitch can you envision Ma Bell and the old school telephone operators with all of the wires and like you know what I mean connecting phone calls all over the place because mm-hmm yeah that but like more technical like yeah a computer a big ass supercomputer anyways so this is what the man was working on all right and I'm sorry that I am like fixated on this shit but like whoo he wasn't working on my fucking laptop or yours for that matter anywho former co-workers would recount that richard loved to talk about porn sex workers and frequenting snm clubs and the red light district gosh i'm just full of shit in this script today 
Sorry, Mrs. Babb. Shout out to Mrs. Babb, my AP English teacher. Promised I wasn't going to be using any uh, a lot of college words in this one, but um, sorry. Broke my promise already. May you rest in peace. I remember New York City in the early 80s before Times Square was cleaned up. Like, you know, like the neon lights, sex workers, the adult theaters. It was live as fuck and super dank like for sure from my recollection like I remember like my mom like ushering me like quickly through these throngs of nasty men in fucking trench coats and like women you know sex workers and you know transgendered sex workers and like male sex like sex workers across the board you know um dealing you know emaciated drug riddled alcoholic beaten abused hollowed you know and I'm not just putting all of these things on like every single one of them but I mean like across the board there was just you know a sadness and a fucking disgustingness that you know you had to like really traverse through to get to where you were going um before they cleaned it up and made it more tourist friendly yeah i definitely remember that stuff being super gross yuck so on october 28th 1967 29 year old nancy Schiva vogel said that she was going to play bingo at saint margaret roman catholic church in little ferry new jersey but instead, she went shopping at Valley Fair Department Store. Two days later, on October 30th, her Rambler was found parked at Brinkerhoff Street and Homestead Place in Ridgefield Park, New Jersey. Nancy had been found nude, strangled with either a rope or tie, beaten about the face, side and the side of on the right side of her face. Um, she had a bruise that was like super gnarly like a black eye nancy had a black eye and the bruising also at the back of her head there were no signs of rape but because her clothes were found folded under her head and she was wrapped in an army blanket on the floorboard area of her back seat the douchebag prosecutor being that guy assumed that nancy knew her killer and most likely met up with him for some sort of tryst and that you know he like folded her clothes up neatly and put them under her head or you know like they met up for sex and then he killed her and nancy's case would remain unsolved until 2010 on july 17 1968 jacqueline jackie harp 13 years old was last seen at around 9:50 p.m walking home from evening drum and bugle practice at school when she failed to return her parents notified police the following morning her body was found strangled uh, in a lot in midland park new jersey jackie had been strangled with a leather flag sling jackie's clothes were disheveled and she had been struck in the face jackie had a bruise on her forehead from being hit there was also blood smeared on her abdomen but no signs of penetrative rape Jackie's case would be closed in 2019 after a confession from Richard. 
At 8 p.m. on April 7, 1969, 18-year-old Irene Blaze was seen on Main Street in Hackensack. 45 minutes later, she was seen with an unidentified white male at the Hackensack bus station. The following day, Irene's body was found in Saddle River behind the Sani Pure Laboratories in Saddle Brook. She was face down in four feet of water. Irene had been strangled with either a rope or her crucifix. It wasn't determined by police. While she was partially nude, there was no signs of penetrative rape. Irene was beaten and bruised. She also sustained a single stab wound through the back and into the right lung. Like Jackie Harp, Richard confessed in 2019 to the 1960 murder of Irene. July 14, 1969 was just another summer night for 15-year-old Denise Velasca. At 8 p.m., she left her home in Closter to go hang out with a friend at a friend's house in Westwood with an expected 11 p.m. curfew set for Denise. Witnesses say they saw the teen walking at around 9 p.m. on Old Hook Road in Emerson, heading in the direction of Westwood. On July 15th, in front of St. Mary's Cemetery in Saddlebrook, Denise's body was found. Denise was strangled with her crucifix, beaten and bruised in her face. Nude from the waist up, her bra was loosened and raised towards her neck. Unlike the first three victims, Denise was sexually assaulted. A bloody palm print was left on Denise's thigh. Again, her case would go unsolved for 50 years until the confession until the confession given by Richard Cottingham in 2019. During the time that Richard was committing his serial killings, he had many run-ins with police for things that were described as minor offenses, but I call fucking bullshit. Okay, because it wasn't minor. The shit he was doing was super fucking recklessly fucking horrible. Um, so, there's that. Um, October 3rd, 1969, Richard gets himself charged and convicted of drunk driving in New York City. He was sentenced to 10 days in jail and a $50 fine. So now we find that after the rape and murder of Denise Velasca, Richard took a break from committing serial killings. But he's still doing a whole bunch of fuck shit. So on May 3rd, 1970, Richard is 23, and he marries his wife, Janet, at Our Lady of Lourdes Church in Queens Village, New York. The two settled into their marriage, moving into the Ledgewood Terrace Apartments in Little Ferry, New Jersey. In 1972, Richard was charged with shoplifting at Stern's department store in Paramus, New Jersey. Richard was fined $50 and a slap on the wrist. In 1973, Richard would be charged with robbery, sodomy, and sexual assault in New York City. After picking up the young lady, he took her to a bar named Flanagan's that he frequented. After drugging her, he took her to the Seedy Airport Hotel Motel in New Jersey, where he assaulted her viciously. This case, unfortunately, was dismissed. Also, in October 1973, Richard and Janet welcomed their first child together, a child that they would name Blair. Four months after Blair's birth in 1974, Richard would be charged for unlawful imprisonment and robbery, again in New York. On August 9, 1974, after being dropped off at a bus stop on Broad Avenue in Ridgefield, New Jersey, 16-year-old Lorraine Marie Kelly and 17-year-old Mary Ann Pryor, um, teen, the teens waited for a bus to take them to the Garden Plaza Mall in Paramus, and then the girls disappeared. 
girls had hitchhiked in the past. Ugh, don't fucking get me started. Okay, say it with me. Put your thumbs back in your fucking pockets for the love of all things sacred. Hitchhiking rant over. Five days later, their remains were found in Mount, Va- uh, Mount Vale. It appeared that the girls had been killed elsewhere and their bodies dumped in the small wooded area across from the Ridgemont Gardens apartment complex. Both girls had been found face down and nude, parallel to each other. Both teens had markings that indicated their wrists and ankles had been bound. Both girls had rope tied around their necks with a hitch riding knot. Both were beaten and their clothes were missing. While both were sexually assaulted, it's believed that one lived longer than the other, or kept alive longer than the other. One of the girls had been tortured with cigarette burns on her breast. The teens were identified by the necklaces that they were wearing. On April 27, 2001, Richard pleaded guilty to two counts of first-degree murder in their murders. In 1975, Richard and Janet began renting a three-bedroom home in Lodi, New Jersey. A month after moving in, the couple welcomed their second child, Scott. The third and final child, Jenny, would be born in 1976. It's been said that after the birth of Jenny, sexual relationships ceased in the Cottingham home. A little over a year after Jenny was born, on December 15, 1977, Richard would come out of hibernation and begin killing again. 26-year-old Mary Ann Carr was an x-ray technician who lived in the Ledgewood Terrace Apartments in Little Ferry, the same apartments the Cottinghams lived in before moving into their home in Lodi. Mary Ann was seen on December 15, 1977, between 7.45 and 7.50 p.m. standing by her car with a white male who is described as being approximately 28 to 32 years of age. Mary Ann's apartment door was unlocked and she wasn't seen again. The following morning, December 16th, the remains of Mary Ann car were found wedged in between a chain link fence and a parked van on the side of the Quality Inn Motel off of Route 17 in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. Mary Ann had been found in her uniform with tape over her mouth. Her neck bore the coloration and ligature signs of of garroted strangulation. Mary Ann's wrists and ankles sustained deep ligature lines from the handcuffs she was bound with and her ankle restraints uh, left deeper wounds of bruising. Similarly to the two previous attacks committed to Mary Ann, there was a bruise on her right breast, her thighs, inner thighs, legs, and arms. Mary Ann sustained a hemorrhage in the left uh, octopal, oh Jesus, cannot, it's a bone just behind the left ear. I will be better at this one. Occipital. Okay, the occipital bone just behind the left ear and a slit in the pant leg above the left knee and thigh. I assume there was like a cut or a laceration in that area as well. On the night of March 22nd, 1978, 
pregnant 22-year-old waitress, Karen Schilt, had a normal day. She worked as a waitress at Tuesday's Restaurant and Tavern in New York City, located on 3rd Avenue near East 17th Street. Karen left the restaurant and briefly visited her boyfriend at nearby Bellevue Hospital. So it's, like, unknown to me, like, if he was, like, working there or if he was, like, a patient. But, anywho, she went to go see her boo. And then, like, after she you know, did her quick little visit, Karen returned Tuesdays to finish the rest of her shift, which ended at 8 p.m. After her shift, Karen had a couple of drinks because it was 1978 and women were still allowed to drink alcohol when they were pregnant. It was not frowned upon by doctors, so I'm not going to be allowing everybody to shame her. It was 19-fucking-78, okay? We know better now. Okay, so... After her shift, Karen had a couple of drinks before scooting down a little ways to another tavern on 3rd Avenue for a couple more drinks. Again, chef don't fucking judge. When Karen ponied up to the bar for her after-work libations, a man named, quote, John Schaefer began engaging her in conversation. John asked Karen if she was a working girl. Now, not to femsplain, but for those who don't know, working girl is is a slang term for sex worker. Karen told Jen, or John that she wasn't, but he continued to carry on with his conversation about frequenting certain establishments on 3rd Avenue, which had a reputation to be frequented by sex workers. <sighs> Almost immediately during this conversation, Karen began to feel ill. She began to realize she had been drugged and stopped sipping her drink. Or, like, she felt like, okay, so this isn't like the baby is reacting to a long day on my feet, blah, 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 blah. This isn't, like, morning sickness. Like, I feel like I've been drugged, but you know what I mean? Like, ooh, I don't know. But I'm going to stop sipping my drink. And, you know, she slipped off of her bar stool and left John at the bar so she could walk to her apartment at 94 3rd Avenue. Pretending to have, like, chivalrous concern for Karen, John followed her out of the bar, tagging along her in his car until he saw her beginning to, like, lose her balance and start weaving, and he asked her if she wanted a ride home, to which she said yes. Karen felt unconscious, like, instantly. When Karen regained her consciousness, she had no idea how long the two had been driving, but she knew they were no longer in, like her neck of the woods after seeing a sign for route 80 in new jersey john asked karen if she'd taken a tunanol a tunanol and she said no so he forced her to take three bluish pills and one red tunial capsule resulting in her passing out like super quickly again so before rehypnol became a pop became popular tunial t- yeah was a go-to date rape drug fucking yuck karen's next recollection was being awakened in a dark place with a burning sensation occurring to her breasts during the torture chatty kathy ass richard revealed to karen that he had once lived in the location he was torturing her at but like she was like in and out and she it wasn't really making sense so she didn't know if like it was like a place he had lived at you know in the past present you know like in the way way back she had no idea what the fuck was going on can't blame you karen i don't know what the fuck's going on either homegirl 
Anyways, after passing out again, when Karen came to again, she awoke in the Hackensack Hospital. (sighs) Thank goodness for small miracles, right? Having been drugged as heavily as she had been by Richard um, and the sedation at the hospital, I presume, Karen felt as though she was in a physical and mental fog. Only snippets of her her harrowing encounter with Richard coming to her mind. What had happened was this. At 7 a.m. the morning of March 23rd, patrolman Raymond Agger discovered Karen's nearly lifeless body in the parking lot of the Ledgewood Terrace Apartments in Little Ferry. As patrolman Agger entered the eastern parking lot, he observed a car parked facing a stockade fence. Karen was partially hidden beneath the parked car. Unconscious, Karen's blouse was pulled up above her breasts and her slacks were pulled down past her knees. Here is something that should be noted as well. At the time of her her vicious attack, Karen fit the victim's like profile of various attacks and murders that had been transpiring in the area. So she was like at five foot five. Karen was roughly 140 pounds, blue eyed with dyed blonde hair. At the time that Karen was found, her coat, purse, scarf, and large silver ring, silver ring were missing. Patrolman Agger called for emergency response. When they arrived, Patrolman Agger assisted in administering oxygen and cardiac massage in an attempt to get her heart started. After several moments and feeling encouraged by her faint heartbeat, she was transferred to Hackensack Hospital. The admitting physician was mortified at Karen's condition. It was documented that Karen, who was unidentified at the time, had bruises on her legs and elbow trauma. Karen's breasts were severely scratched and the right breast had been burned with a cigarette and bitten savagely. After checking Karen's blood, it was found that besides alcohol, Karen had uh, ambarbital and secobarbital in her system. Although she'd been left for dead, Karen survived her encounter and fortunately very little memory of this encounter. On October 10th, 1978, 19-year-old Susan Geiger, a busy woman, again, standing at about 5 feet tall and 96 pounds, the petite blonde, was described, this is gross, like the book that, you know, described her, they described her as being like petite and cute i don't it doesn't really fucking matter how pretty or attractive these women were you know everybody's beautiful in their own way so like whatever but nonetheless she was a pretty petite sex worker and she had been doing sex work along 8th avenue near the alpine motel This area in which Susan worked near the theater district was notoriously riddled with the sex shops, high-volume prostitution, porn theaters. Uh, In that area, sex workers didn't have to wait long to get clients either. Many of the sex workers being approached by potential dates that would walk up to them or cruise alongside them, you know, for instance, as they strolled together down 8th Avenue for a late-night cup of coffee at the local all-night diner they frequented, you know, night after night or whatever as they stood in front of the neon girls 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 signs and stuff like that uh on this night when richard hansen from alaska approached susan offering her 200 dollars flat for a night of sex she said nope 
that's like I did that in my Bugs Bunny. Mm-hmm. Nope. She said, "No can do, homeboy. I'm booked for the night." Susan made the fatal mistake, though, of giving the potential $200 client her phone number and told him to call her to arrange a date if he was still down, like, for the following day. So Richard called on the 11th, and the plans were set. This was a common ruse Richard commonly used. He would obtain the phone number of a sex worker he planned on killing. After telling her he wanted to take her out for more than just sex, like a real date of some sort, or that he was going to pay her, like, an astronomical amount of money. And so, like, I did not do a Google of what the average rate were you know in 1978 for prostitution um in new york city but i would surmise that you know the promise of 200 dollars would be a hefty portion of work for an evening for a lady of the night um at that time so you know she would be you know remiss to not give him the phone number and try to get that money you know get that head get that bread and then leave so after telling her he wants to like you know take her out more than just sex a real date of some sort he then convinces whomever you know his victim is his potential victim is that you know it's okay you know and richard would then stake out the area to assure that the women weren't followed by say like a jealous boyfriend or a pimp for example once he was convinced he was in complete control and had the woman isolated he would make her his next victim so at midnight richard picked susan up in front of the alpine motel the two drove through heavy traffic to Flanagan's Tavern on 1st Avenue between East 65th and 66th. While at Flanagan's, Richard confessed to Susan that his name was in fact Jim, and he was married with young children in New Jersey. He told her he worked as a computer operator and, you know, in the city and that he had just won thousands of dollars from gambling. He then presented a wad of cash to show her he was serious. While the two were at Flanagan's at one point, Susan excused herself to use the restroom or something like she left the bar area. When she returned, Richard was stirring a freshly ordered screwdriver for her. He handed Susan the drink and told her to continue to stir it with the straw for a little bit longer. After taking a few sips, Susan was feeling the effects of the barbs Richard slipped into her drink. Slumped over in onto her date to keep from dropping onto the ground susan didn't recall drinking much of her screwdriver but did remember getting into her date's car susan remembered spelling out t-h-u-n-d-e-r-b-i-r-d the letters inscribed on her date's dashboard and then immediately passing out coming to here and there like karen schultz a few months before susan came to recollecting being in a room with the man she'd been on a date with and he was brutalizing abusing molesting and torturing her but she was unable to move or fight him off at one point she thought he'd beaten her with a green garden hose The following afternoon, miraculously, Susan awoke on the floor of the airport motel in South Hackensack, New Jersey. Susan suffered from numerous bruises, bleeding 
bleeding, lacerations on her face, breast, vagina, and rectum. In shock and running on, like, pure fucking fear and adrenaline, Susan found her clothes and quickly dressed. While doing so and trying to get the fuck out of that room, Susan realized that her purse, its contents, and her gold earrings had been stolen. Susan exited room 28 and into the afternoon sun or daylight that embraced the parking lot like a sweater because, you know, it's fall. Sweater weather. At the same time that Susan was staggering around, obviously in pain and in a mental fog in the, mental, in the motel parking lot, patrolman Raymond Agger, the homie, pulled into the parking lot. The patrolman began to question Susan, who was not making much sense of her rambling. You know, he was not making much sense of her rambling. Susan was finally able to give the patrolman her name and then began telling him about the harrowing experience she had. She told the officer she'd been beaten and raped by a man who picked her up in New York City. Observing the condition of her beaten and cut face, disheveled and ripped blouse, and some of her artificial nails being missing, he went into room 28. Immediately after entering the room, the officer saw the numerous broken fingernails and disheveled bed. Also on the bed were scraps of material that matched the clothing Susan was wearing and two towels. So, the two towels were sent to the New Jersey State Police Laboratories in Little Falls, New Jersey. Upon examination, it was found that the towels contained semen from a type O male secretor. Now, back to, you know, the motel room. Patrolman uh, Agger drove Susan to Hackensack Hospital. As suspected and feared, because, you know, he is not a dumb man, Susan's blood analysis revealed that she had been drugged with the same cocktail of drugs as Karen Schilt. Also, like Karen, Susan was pregnant. Susan had also been similarly beaten, abused, and tortured, her right breast having been bitten savagely as well. (sighs) On Sunday, December 2nd, 1979, at about 9 a.m., hotel workers at the Travel Inn Motor Lodge at 515 West 42nd Street called the fire department because smoke was billowing out of room 417. The room had been registered to a secretive man named Carl Wilson of Merlin, New Jersey. The mystery man had hung the do not disturb sign on the doorknob upon checking in and was rarely seen afterwards. When the local fire department responded to the December morning that December morning, they had no idea what they were what they were about to reveal. In the darkness and smoke-filled room, the charred remains of two women on separate beds covered by sheets that had been intentionally torched. The two women's bodies were nude and hideously mutilated. Both women's heads and hands were completely severed from their bodies, and oh my fucking god, I saw the pictures. And they weren't, like, redacted photos. The actual decapitated photos... take a moment yeah um at autopsy it would be revealed that both women had been subject to extreme physical torture and sexual abuse before their murders the victim who would later be identified as 22 year old sex uh 
I'm sorry. She was a she was actually a, a high class escort. Um, Dee Dee Guzzari of Trenton, New Jersey, was last seen on November 30th, 1979, in New York, at the Tittle Tattle Club, where she operated out of. Dee Dee had suffered through Richard's beating, burning with cigarettes, biting and cutting on her breasts. There were so there were there was selective burning on the genitals and rectum. She also had numerous superficial cuts to her body, but the cause of her death was a stab wound through her back and into her lung. The other woman, who has to this day remained unidentified, suffered the same tortures and abuse that Dee Dee was subjected to by Richard. So, Dee Dee was identified by two things. There was a pair of shoes that were found in, like, a thrift consignment type store that were identified as hers, as well as a cesarean mark. Didi had given birth 16 months prior to her murder to a daughter that she had given up for adoption. And uh, we'll leave it at that. Five months later, on May 4th, 1980, a 16-year-old prostitute, originally from Florida, who had literally... Oh, goodness. Okay. She had literally just arrived in New York on April 30th. She was operating under the name of Shelley Dudley, but Shelley Dudley's real name was Valerie Ann Street. Valerie Ann Street was abducted by Richard Cottingham. Richard took Valerie to the Quality Inn in Hasbrook, New Jersey. For the night, he beat, raped, and carved away at Valerie. The following morning, on May 5th, her body was found under the bed in room 132 by the motel's cleaning lady who noticed a peculiar odor coming from the bed area now um so val okay so here's the thing when richard picked up valerie ann he had her register the room so Valerie Ann registered the room under her alias, Shelley Dudley, but did give the truth that she was from Florida. Uh, anywho, when she had been found, she had been found bound and handcuffed under the bed, and her cause of death was asphyxiation. So for nearly a month, she remained unidentified, because again, she had registered for that fucking room under an alias. Through fingerprints, New Jersey police were finally, you know, that uh, were sent to Florida. New Jersey police were finally able to properly identify her. Um, And further investigating found that, again, she had arrived in New York on April 30th. So she had only been working in New York as a prostitute for a week before Richard swooped her up and murdered her. A week later, on May 12th, sex worker Pamela Weisenfeld was discovered in a parking lot in Teaneck, New Jersey. Like many of the other victims before, she had been drugged, beaten, raped, and tortured, but she survived her attack. On May 15th, 1980, a call from a room fire at the Hotel Seville came in. When when New York firefighters entered the room, they found the tortured and murdered body of sex worker Jean Rayner. 
Jean was like Dee Dee in the regards that she was a high-end escort who normally didn't operate out of seedy motels. There were many similarities in the manners of abuse and torture. However, unlike Dee Dee and her unknown counterpart, who were decapitated and had their hands removed, Jean still had her head and hands. Instead, her breasts had been dissected from her body and placed side by side on the headboard. Fuck! Finally, a week later, on May 22nd, sex worker Leslie Ann O'Dell met her date who called himself Tommy in New York City near Gramercy Park. The two had drinks at a bar and then departed, Tommy telling Leslie that they were going to drive to New Jersey to get a room and have sex for the night. Before checking into the Quality Inn, the two ate dinner at the New Star Diner in South Hackensack. So this diner is literally five-tenths of a mile away from the Ledgewood Terrace apartment and four-tenths of a mile away from the airport motel. After the two ate, they drove a mile away to the Quality Inn Motel. So, you know, now you can see, like, just how close his New Jersey dumping ground area, you know, killing ground, dumping ground, torture ground, all of that shit was. So, when the two arrived, Tommy started acting funky as fuck, to say the least, He parked the car in the rear of the motel outside of the Southwest interest. Tommy told Leslie, I'm sorry, huge ass air quotes, because you know, that's his alias. Tommy told Leslie to wait for him and disappeared. A few moments later, he returned and removed some items from the trunk of the car. Uh, Tommy told Leslie as they walked side by side to room 117 to avoid being seen by anyone. After letting her into the room, he left her briefly to move the car. When he returned, the torture began. First, Richard ordered Leslie to undress and lay on the bed face down. After she did this, he climbed on top of her and laying on her back, put a knife to her throat, threatening to kill her if she made a sound. Without waiting for a response, he systematically began restraining her, handcuffing her wrist behind her back, Then, and then, while becoming sexually aroused, began telling her all of the fucked up things he was going to do to her in explicit detail. He told her that he'd done this numerous times before to a number of women. He told her that he got sexual gratification from torturing and beating women. He told Leslie that she was a whore, she had to pay for being a whore, and he was going to hurt her because she was a whore. While torturing Leslie, Richard scraped her presacral region and threatened to burn her breasts, as well as her pubic and anal regions, while also threatening to beat her with his belt. Leslie was raped, tortured, and humiliated by Richard. Like, He made her do a lot of shit that I really don't feel up to repeating after all of the other dink shit that I just talked about. But, like, when she refused to lick his feet, he flew into a rage and started screaming at her. And then, like, he jumped on her, and so, and he tried strangling her, but Leslie began, you know, she was able to scream. So, Richard told her in this moment that she was going to be killed if anyone heard her. Newsflash. 
um because he had just used that motel to you know assault and murder other women you know in weeks before you know the weeks before uh the security was actually on high fucking alert so when they heard the blood curdling scream coming from that area they immediately notified the police the police were able to apprehend uh Richard as he tried to flee the motel down a corridor. So, who the charges listed in Richard's New Jersey indictment included kidnapping, attempted murder, aggravated assault, aggravated assault with dead, with a deadly weapon, aggravated sexual assault while armed or rape, um, aggravated sexual assault while armed sodomy, aggravated sexual assault while armed fellatio, possession of a weapon, possession of controlled dangerous substances, uh, secrobarbital, amabarbital, and possession of controlled dangerous substances, diazepam, or valium. After his wife, Janet, initially um, initiated divorce proceedings on the grounds of abandonment, non-support, and mental cruelty, he resided in a basement apartment of the house they lived in on Vreeland Street in Lodi, New Jersey. After his arrest, police found that, you know, Richard being, you know, a typical serial killer, also had, you know, in a room somewhere in the home, like, um, personal effects or trophies that he kept, um, and traces of two of his victims in his room and in the trunk of his car. Richard had working knowledge of forensics and in the 13 year period during which he was known to have committed 11 murders one fingerprint belonging to him was recovered from basically from the ratchet mechanism of handcuffs left behind on one of his victims a case based on signature pattern was built against Richard along with the testimony of three survive of three surviving victims. He was also found he was he was first found guilty of murdering Valerie Street, drawing a sentence of 173 to 197 years in prison. And two following trials Richard was found guilty of four second-degree murders. In 2010, he pleaded guilty in the 1967 murder of Nancy Vogel. In 2021, he pleaded guilty to kidnapping, raping, and drowning uh, the two teen girls from New Jersey, whose names I cannot think of right now. It was Mary Ann and Lorraine. Yeah. And, uh, gosh, you know, he also confessed to the three murders of New Jersey schoolgirls in 1968, from 1968 to 69, in a return for immunity for prosecution. During this time, also, uh, Didi Gazzari's daughter had become had written a letter to Richard while and you know befriended him um in her search for finding her birth mother she found out that her birth murder mother was murdered by Richard and then you know um she pursued 
him in an attempt to find out what had happened and somewhere the two developed a friendship um I did not look into shit about his kids or Janet I know that she testified um because this is where I say what happened is this um they lived with a fucking monster if the shit that I just described wasn't like spooky season enough, you know what I mean? The stuff that he the, the stuff that he did to these women, the torture that he committed, his ex wife and children, who are super adults at this point, have nothing to do with my reporting outside of they were born during the time that he was facilitating these crimes. Um what happened is this Richard was a quintessential serial killer we've seen this time and time again where there are proclivities for sexual deviance at a young age there becomes an obsession an obsession and a coveting of pornography and not just, you know, getting off on looking at mom's catalogs. Because, you know, some, some some serial killers were okay with, you know, that being their kink. But, you know, in Richard's instance, it was the S&M, the BDS&M. It was these, the torture, the binding, the dominating that transfixed him and became something that would gratify him sexually in an animalistic, uh, feral as fuck manner. Uh, he was an antisocial child who grew up to be an antisocial tween, who grew up to be an antisocial, uh, antisocial social teenager who grew up to be an antisocial adult who worked in an industry which typically you know there aren't I mean there weren't many there weren't many co-workers at the time that you know like there's a there's a there's a link in the references from a doc that I did catch that was from ID where you know there was literally like one or two former co-workers that were interviewed so at that time when he had gotten into working with computers there really were not many people that were working in that field and so again he was antisocial but he was social in the regards that he took to frequenting the you know sex district of the city and the bars and he did thrive off of that um excitement and braggadociousness of you know look what I did when he would continue with the same locker room banter that he you know had started in high school with you know the few friends that he had into his work friendships or relationships with coworkers. Uh, you know, he was kinda sort of oversharing. He was 
low-key telling people what he was doing without telling people what he was doing. He was doing it right under their noses. Um, you know, like his wife would say at one point that she had no idea what he was up to. The kids had no, obviously had no idea what daddy was up to. Thank goodness for that. Um, but he was a two-face. He lived a life in the burbs with his wife and children, but he also worked and hunted and stalked a lot of his victims in the city which makes perfectly good sense to me, you know? I mean, you don't shit where you eat. But he also could not resist, you know, attacking and murdering women in New Jersey as well. I almost see it as if he initially began attacking women in New Jersey because that's where he lived and that's where he was from, that's where he was at. And then once he became an adult and started working in New York and had more access to the sex district the red light district uh the sex workers of the area and all of that where he could just more easily pull women who were not going to be missed um that became his hunting ground but he would take them to new jersey where they wouldn't be so quickly identified in a lot of instances or he would um you know well yeah he would you know leave them in New Jersey where they couldn't be so easily identified you know or shit you know set fire arson you know in the city if he did commit the crime in the city and leave the bodies there you know, because that's what he had done track record wise. But I mean, Richard had, Richard had, you know, asserted, asserted that he had murdered over, you know, upwards between 85 to like a hundred women as well. Uh, you know, uh, our criminal minds fans out there might remember that Richard Cottingham was covered in an episode. There are various articles on him uh, numerous, you know, mini documentaries and interviews as well. Um, yeah, you know, he told these women he did not like them because of what they were. To him, they were the ship beneath his feet. Um, it, uh, the coworker also said at one point in the ID uh, documentary that at one point Richard was having fun, you know, enjoying having sex with, you know, prostitutes and, you know, talking about it with him. And then he had uh, contracted a sexually transmitted disease from one and that's when his discussions about the women to his co-worker got darker and it was no longer just like fun party shit it was their horrors their disease sluts their this their that so you know if you take him 
getting off on the imagery of these models who okay sold their likenesses for these bondage photographs okay let's put it that way um that's where the seed of degradation towards women began because Richard viewed those women as cheap but he also was sexually aroused by them so that's where you know that conflict that you know that always lies is at um also then you know you go from the pictures not being enough to immersing himself in the environment in which he could procure sex from workers it was also noted by the co-worker that Richard was entitled he felt as though he should not have to pay for sex like he could take it from these women who were of quote-unquote ill report uh um especially like you know after getting allegedly burned by one with a sexually transmitted disease and i'm wondering if that altercation happened around the time of the birth of janet and richard's daughter jenny when sexual relations ceased to you know uh transpire between the couple I wonder if it's because he had contracted a sexually transmitted disease from a prostitute that he no longer was even interested in having sex with his wife. One, because he was going to give it to her. Or two, because, again, he had, you know, contracted something and was turned off in general by women. I mean, he was turned on, but he was turned off. So, so much more I could say about this man, but I'm really not going to do it, you guys. I'm going to temper myself steadfast, be resolute. (sighs) Richard Francis Cottingham, the torso killer. Wow. Wow. I'm Kimberly. This is what had happened, a true crime podcast. I'm going to sign off and uh, I guess I'll hit you with some of this razzle dazzle on the way out as we decompress and move on. And I'll see you soon with another lesser known true crime story.